Tonight's reading is Psalm 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back, the mountains leapt like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it, sea, that you fled? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why, mountains, did you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. This is God's word. My name's Phil. I'm associate minister here. Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Our Father God, we ask that you would be our teacher and our guide tonight. And we pray that you would do more than just enable us to understand these words. We pray that you would drive them into our hearts by your spirit, that they would shape us. Amen. Uh, Let me begin tonight by giving you a lesson in cultural history. Uh, One of these, there should be an image appearing up there. For those of you who do not know what one of these is, In the 1980s, this was high technology. I kid you not. Uh, This is not a novelty USB. This is a cassette. Uh, One of these bad boys could hold as many as 18 or even 20 songs on it in in something only the size of your iPhone. Uh, And long before you guys were illegally file sharing and downloading, we all had analog stereo systems with twin cassette decks. And so you would have uh, the thing you'd bought in one deck and you would record it illegally in the other. And the reason you wanted twin cassette decks is to make a playlist. See, the playlist was everything in the 1980s. You would choose the songs you want and you would make a playlist. Technically, it was illegal, but hey, uh, everybody did it, so that means it's all... No, no, that doesn't work, does it? But anyway, we all did it. And you made a playlist for the girl you fancied to tell her what you felt about her. You made a playlist uh, of songs that helped you revise before exams. You made a playlist before the summer of your favourite tunes that would set the mood music for the summer. And then you basically just played it until it wore out, which was also a thing back then. Music wore out. I mean, who knew? Uh, And... Here's the thing, the, the playlist created the mood for your, for your life while you played it. It was the songs that went round your head, the things that made you smile or sad. And we're turning to look at the Psalms for three weeks. And in one sense, the Psalms are the playlist for the Christian life. If you've been through the songs and prayers of the Psalms, you know what the Christian life should feel like. They are the mood music. They're not, it's not the only thing to say about them, but in one sense, they are the mood music for the Christian life. They're God's playlist. Now, I'd love to say more about that, but we haven't got time tonight. But the important thing is that within the Psalms, there are smaller playlists. So it's divided into five books. And we're in book five tonight. And even within the books, there are smaller playlists. And within book five, we're in Psalms 113 to 118, which are called the Egyptian Hallel doesn't really matter why but here's what here's why it's important these songs and prayers these psalms were the psalms that the the Israelites in Jesus day would sing and would pray around the time of the Passover Easter in other words in the last days of Jesus life as he's walking around Jerusalem It is these psalms that he hears wafting out of windows as families gather. 
to go through the traditional Jewish Passover. When he went to the temple and he's debating with the Pharisees in the days before he dies, he will have been hearing in the background people chanting, singing, praying. Psalms 113 to 18. If it doesn't sound too crass to say it, these psalms are the playlist for the road to the cross. These psalms are the playlist for the road to the cross. And we're going to be looking at the central three, Psalms 114, 115 and 116 over the next few weeks. And I hope that we will find that the psalms that encourage Jesus on his way to the cross will be an encouragement and a help to us if we call ourselves Christians and therefore we take up our crosses and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The playlist for the Christian life. And what we'll learn tonight from Psalm 114, from this particular psalm, is that God has the power to rescue us and God has promised to provide for us. God has the power to rescue us and God has promised to provide for us. And as we journey through uh, the wilderness of this life, on our way to God's promised paradise, those are two lessons we really, really need to have lodged in our hearts if we're going to keep going through all the ups and downs and disappointments of life. They're key lessons if we are followers of Jesus already. They're also key lessons if we're wondering whether to follow Jesus, weighing up whether it's worth it. They're key lessons as we're struggling and failing to follow Jesus as we know we should. Okay, just uh, three points for you. Foreigners in Egypt are citizens of God, unnatural behavior from the natural world, the powerful presence of God. And three, uh, th- three lessons that really come straight out of there. What's God's purpose in salvation? What's God's power in salvation? And what is God's provision? So look with me at verses one to two. When Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary. Israel, his dominion. Psalm 113 describes the God who is great above all and yet who reaches down and rescues the lowly. And the God who is praised from east to west for his salvation. And what is spoken about in theory in Psalm 113 is now described in practice in Psalm 114. Now Israel, Jacob, Judah, they're just different ways of referring to the Jewish people, the Israelites in the Old Testament. They'd gone to Egypt through a guy called Joseph 400 years before the Exodus, but they'd never been at home there. Do you see in verse 1 that Egypt was a people of foreign tongue? They didn't allow the language and the culture of Egypt to shape them and mold them. They remained distinct as God's people. Now, I hope that as, uh, as Christians, those of us who are Christians here, will be engaged and involved in the culture of London where we live. Lots of people come to London purely for what they can get out of it. But I hope that we'll be net contributors. I hope that we will be those who are not consumers, that we'll love the city and its people, that we'll be driven by a desire to serve others while we're here. But we must never, ever forget that if you follow Jesus, this city is not your ultimate home. If you follow Jesus and you live by his rules, you will always feel a little bit on the outside of our culture, whatever that culture is, whatever the city is. And as so often happens, the Egyptians responded to those who are different from them with suspicion and hatred. It's just the way we humans do it. You see it in the playground. You experience it brutally if you're a Rohingya Muslim now in Burma. You experience it brutally as a Christian in the Middle East for the last decade or so. 
And it happened to the Israelites in ancient Egypt. The majority culture oppressed and enslaved and eventually sought to carry out genocide, to absolutely wipe them out. But God stepped in. You see, God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before, I will protect and I will bless your descendants and I will bless all people through them eventually. And so God acted to rescue them. He redeemed them. That means he rescued them from slavery and took them out of Egypt. Now, there's a deliberate contrast between verses 1 and 2. The people came out of Egypt and became God's dominion. That is, they, they moved from one ruler to another, from the pharaoh of Egypt, the tyrant, to the wise, benevolent rule of God. I guess you've, you've seen the news in Zimbabwe. We were praying for it a minute ago. We cry out for that country after decades of Mugabe's wit, wicked, corrupt rule. You know, it was the breadbasket of Africa, and it's now basically a famine camp. And while uh, Gucci Grace is the number one, apparently the number one customer at Harrods many years, most Zimbabweans live well below the poverty line and are starving. But here's the thing. We, we, we can see that Mugabe is pretty much gone and we rejoice. But who knows who's going to take over? You know, the fear is it could be somebody just as bad as him. But the wonderful thing here is that the Israelites are rescued from the tyrant Pharaoh and they come to be the dominion to be ruled by the God of the Bible. Here's a ruler who, when he came down to earth in the person of Jesus, gave up everything he had to serve other people, even giving his own life for people who didn't deserve it. That's the kind of person you want ruling you, somebody who exercises their power to serve and love others rather than to enrich themselves. It's this wonderful blessing. They left the tyranny of Pharaoh and they enjoyed the rule of God. There's another contrast as well in the opening verses. They went from being uh, with a people of foreign tongue to being God's sanctuary. Or if you like, they went from being outsiders in Egypt to being at home with God. God came to dwell in their midst. In Exodus 29 verse 46, God tells us what the point of the whole Exodus thing was. Why did he do it? Why did he rescue this slave people? Why did he bring them out of Egypt? Why did he take them to Israel? He said, I do this so that they will know I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God had them build a temple, uh, firstly a tent and then a temple right in the heart of Israel so that he could symbolically dwell amongst them as their God. What was God's purpose in salvation? Well, the Exodus is just a model, it's a sign. It it points towards a greater rescue that Jesus would enact on the cross, where the purpose was exactly the same. We read in Colossians 1, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God brought us out of one kingdom and brought us into his kingdom to be with him. That's what these first two uh, verses of Psalm 114 remind us. That salvation, if you're a Christian, is not like a legal transaction where um, a kind of guilt is gone and a forgiveness is given. Your status changes like your nationality might change if if you change passports. No, it's much more like an adoption or a marriage. It's the beginning of a lifelong, committed, loving relationship. That's why God did it. See, Christmas is coming, uh, which means some of us will be hosting people and some of us will be hosted by people. And among the, uh, the top things we say at Christmas, but don't necessarily mean entirely 100%, would be make yourself at home. 
It is right up there with, it's all right, I am going to go for a run tomorrow, and that's exactly what I've always wanted. <laughs> the thing is, when people do come, you say, oh, make yourself at home, but you really do not want them to make themselves at home. Oh, you thought it was all right to open the fridge and just take things out without asking me. Oh, okay. You've had a shower and used my towel to dry yourself. Yes, you really have made yourself at home. Not for much longer. (laughs) Here's the door. But you see, when God saves us, he really means it. And you can see how much he means, be my people. Because he sends his Holy Spirit not to dwell amongst us, near us, in a temple, but to live in our hearts, not symbolically, but really. Here's a God who wants us to be at home with him because he has made his home in us. God's purpose in salvation was that we would be his people. Okay, secondly, unnatural behavior from the natural world. Now these days it's pretty easy. If you're a movie director and you want to do something incredible, you just uh, hire a whole team of tech boys and girls and they uh, sit on computers and, and they create a world, avatar, whatever it is. They just do it. But back in the day, we've gone very analog tonight. Uh, back in the day of this, you, had to, you couldn't do all of that. You had to basically physically do it. So when Ben-Hur was, uh, was made in, what was it, 1959, uh, they hired a thousand laborers to spend a whole year carving out the arena for the chariot race scene from a hillside. They imported 40,000 tons of white sand to give it the right look for, for, this, for that one scene. Uh, they, they then spent um, money on 15,000 extras with 18 chariots and 78 horses and about 50 stuntmen, all for a 10-minute scene. It's extraordinary, but it is seriously worth it. A quarter of the entire budget of the film on one scene. But it does the job. It blows your mind when you watch it. I mean, the real Ben-Hur, not the NAF recent remake. Don't watch that. The real one. That is worth watching. Charlton Heston. Anyway, when God, when God wanted to impress us at the Exodus, he really blew the budget and there was no CGI. A river turned to blood. Hailstones like cricket balls fell down. Plagues of frogs and locusts. A pillar of fire led the people out of Egypt. And most spectacular of all, as they stood at the side of the Red Sea, He said, tap the sea with your staff, Moses, and the water stood up in walls. And they walked through, like walking through this building with those walls being water. And when they got to the when they got to the the edge of the promised land 40 years later and find that the Jordan River is in full-on flood mode, a raging torrent, well again, God just says, Okay, you just touch it with the edge of your toe. And he it was like he turned off the tap. And the the river just stopped. When God wants to save his people, nothing stops him. Absolutely nothing. He can marshal the whole forces of creation to do what he wants. When God wants to save, nothing can stop him. The whole creation was shaken up at at the Exodus as God got involved. And a millennia and a half later, when the real salvation that the the Exodus pointed towards happened, again the creation was convulsed. We read in Matthew's Gospel that as Jesus died, there was an unnatural, oppressive darkness, just like in Exodus 12. And that the moment that Jesus died, that the earth shook, just as the Mount Sinai shook 1,500 years beforehand. 
Now, if you are Jesus Christ, and you know that in 24 hours' time, you're going to be handed over to be tortured, brutalized, and nailed to a cross. And worse than that, that you are going to face the wrath, the just wrath of God the Father for the sins of humanity. If you're going to face all of that, you really, really need to know that God is a God who is mighty to save. That you can entrust yourself to him. And he can bring you through this. And if you and I are going to follow Jesus, we need to know the same thing. There are times when the weight of guilt and shame feels overwhelming. There are times when the sheer mediocrity of my love and obedience, just, I just don't know what I can do about it. It leads me to despair. There are times when sinful desire is just simply overpoweringly strong. When I know that the battle with temptation is just a question of when. How long can I hold out? Because I know I'm going to give in. And we need to remember at that moment that we worship a God who is a sea-splitting, mountain-trembling, rescuing God. He does not lack the power to deal with your sin. Look to the Exodus and remember that lesson. Finally then, the, the powerful presence of God. Now the final verses ask a rather, well, not unreasonable question. How on earth can you explain all that weird stuff that happened at the Exodus? So he says, uh, verse 5, Why was it, sea, that you fled? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why, mountains, did you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? Now the point is not, we live in a magical world where just weird things happen, where you know, seas split open and rocks flow with water. Now the Bible is very clear, we live in an ordered world. We live in a world of observable, repeatable, regular, constant laws. That's why the modern scientific movement grew out of Christian cultures. Because they had a strong view that God had made an ordered world. But here's the point. If something as weird as this happens, that lets you know that there must have been, quote, outside interference. Which is a phrase that just makes you think now of um, Russians and elections. But (laughs) it it has a slightly heavier meaning here. Um, a short while ago, I was uh, walking along the river with the, with the dog, just as the tide turned. And I stood and watched for about 20 minutes. The, the river was flowing one way, and then it slowed and slowed and slowed until the point where it wasn't flowing at all. And then gradually, it started to flow the other way, upstream. Yes, I stood watching a river for 20 minutes. Um, but I'd seen everything there is to see on Netflix, and it was genuinely more exciting than watching the highlights of England's last football international. I kid you not. Um, so, look, here's the thing. When you think about it, as ordinary and everyday occurrence as that is, that is just bizarre. Water does not flow uphill. It just doesn't do that. Now, of course, the explanation's pretty obvious in a room like this. The moon was passing overhead and the gravitational pull of the moon meant that the tide shifts and the the water is pulled back with it. Wonderful. That's what happens when a big lump of rock passes within 240-odd thousand miles of us. It makes water flow uphill. Imagine what happens when the creator God of the universe sets foot on earth. Oh, okay, it's not so surprising anymore that mountains tremble, that the sea splits, that rivers turn back and rocks come open and water gushes out. The earth trembled, verse 7, 
because the Lord was there. Tremble earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. They talk about influential people being movers and shakers. That is literally true of God. And again, it's, it is hard not to, not to just hear an echo of what happens later. As a man stands up in a boat in a raging shipwrecker of a storm that's terrifying hardened sailors, says one word, mill pond calm. And in Mark 4, 39, the disciples asked him, says, who is this man? The wind and the waves obey him. The wind and the waves aren't asking the question. They know the answer. They recognize the creator God in human flesh, and so they just do what they are told. Now, the last verse seems rather prosaic after all of that. Instead of building up with this great God, he comes down to earth and the earth shakes and everything. And then we read, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. It does feel a bit anticlimactic, the end of the psalm. But one reason that many Christians seem to give up in the Christian life is that we've lost sight of the truth of this particular verse. We may be very clear on the truth that Jesus died to save us. That in his death and resurrection, God has done everything necessary for our salvation. Tick, I get that. We say amen to it. We're very clear that one day Jesus is coming back and the paradise that he is creating for us is going to be unimaginably wonderful. Tick, I believe that, I get that. But in Exodus, between the Red Sea being saved... And the promised land came 40 years in the wilderness. A tough place where they could not survive without God's provision. And here's the thing. They learned in those years that God didn't just rescue them and leave them to make it on their own. Under their own steam to the promised land. To fend for themselves. He provided everything they needed. You know, there was nothing but red dust and rock. If you've ever flown over the Sinai area, it is just barren. There was nothing for them. Absolutely nothing. And yet every day they woke up, they came out of their tents, and they found once again God had provided them food. And once again, God had provided them water. Every day for 40 years, God gave everything they needed until they made it to the promised land. And God still provides for us as we journey to the promised land, to the new creation. Which means I think there are two key truths that we need to learn from this psalm if we're going to keep going. And we mustn't lose hold of either or we will be tempted to give up. The first key truth from this last verse is that this world is not the promised land. We are saved. That is now. It's wonderful. We've been rescued from spiritual Egypt. Our guilt is gone. We're now forgiven. We're no longer filthy. Jesus has washed us clean. We're no longer slaves. Jesus has broken the power of sin and death. We're no longer cut off from God. Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to live in us. But we are not yet in the new creation. We still live in a world where people get sick. We still live in a world where we have to bury loved ones who've died. We still live in a world where people get bullied at work. We still live in a world where relationships that we thought would just complete us uh, go sour and, and just cause toxic pain. 
We live in the wilderness, not in the promised land. And if we swallowed this idea that, that because we're forgiven, because Jesus rose again, that we can have everything now, then we will just give up. If we mistake this world for heaven, we'll think God is an awful failure, a terrible provider. But that's not the only thing to say. The Christian life is not about grimly holding on to the end. The second truth we must hold on to is that God is a God who provides abundantly for his people in the wilderness. He makes wilderness rock flow with water. That is what God does. Nothing can compare actually with the joy that's to be found with following Jesus. Along with the hardships, along with the difficulties, nothing can compare with the joy that is found in knowing Jesus. Now I guess in a room like this, some of us, probably all of us actually at different times and for different reasons, will have wondered, can God really provide for me adequately? If I really follow God, if I, if I follow Jesus and make a go of the Christian life, will it work out? We wonder whether, it's not so much did Jesus die or is heaven going to be wonderful. It's, it's, it's the bit in between. Can I really cope with life in between? Relationally, the, the sacrifices of obeying Jesus when it comes to sex and relationships just feel pretty heavy right now. It feels like I'm turning my back on intimacy for loneliness, if I'm honest, at times. Or financially, to trust God and give money or to give up a job to serve him. I, ooh, but how will I live? What will I do? Culturally, it feels like it's getting harder and harder to, to hold to the truth of the Bible, to live it, not just to believe it, but to live it. It feels like daily you feel a little bit further away from the mainstream of our culture. Daily it feels like there's more pressure, more awkwardness if I follow Jesus. And the danger is that we are tempted, therefore, to just to step back from putting our hope in God. And instead we try to make the best of it here and now. We make this world our home. We try, and, we try and build cities in the wilderness rather than trust God to provide and keep journeying to the promised land. Remember, God is the God who could make rocks in the desert flow with water. He didn't turn the Sinai wilderness into the promised land, but he did provide water from the rocks there. And he still has the power to do the same for you and me as we journey through the wilderness from slavery to sin towards the joy of heaven. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.4 tells us Christ is the true rock. He is the true rock that verse 8 speaks of. He is the one from whom living water flows. And so as we journey through, we look to him, we trust him. And the truth is that in Christ is everything we need. In him we have the Holy Spirit come to live in us. In him we have rest for our souls as we finally know the thing we were made for. In him we know forgiveness. In him we know the bond of love as we know a, a, a unity with his people which beats any friendship, any bond that we can know on earth. I was... Um, I was out last night at a party with a DJ. It doesn't happen that often at my age. I can tell you on a Friday night <laughs> or a Saturday night, hence my voice this morning, this afternoon. I don't even know. Evening, evening. There you go. It was a late night. I'm tired. Um, 
And I, I have to say, I feel sorry for DJs. I do. Because I imagine you become a DJ because you love music. Tom's nodding. You, you become a DJ because you love music. And every DJ, I, I think, they go through this, this, this thing where you know, they get booked for an event on the Saturday night. And during the week, they think, maybe this will be the one party. This will be the time when the, the group of people who gather... They've not come just to hear the old favourites. They want to be taken on a journey of musical discovery beyond the mainstream. And he arrives full of hope and expectation. And he hits into an extraordinary list of songs that will take people to bands most of them have never heard of, but that he has discovered. And then after half an hour of kind of awkward people standing around looking confused, he gives up and goes for the cheesy floor fillers and the party goes raging and, and a little bit of the integrity and the musicality in him dies. And I think that's, that's the life of the DJ. Um, yeah, it is, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's what happened last night, to be honest. Um, as, a result, as a result, this morning I woke up with a whole heap of classics uh, still buzzing around my brain. And the thing is, uh, as I remembered them through the day, they made me smile, as did some of the dance moves I saw from various individuals in this room last night. Uh, but they, as the music came back to me, it just made me smile. It made me smile. And that's what songs do. They're, they're sort of playlist in your head. If you get the right songs, they make you smile. Now, once I don't really care what music you listen to, but I do care what theological playlist is going on in your head. You see, if the backing track for your life is doubt, God can't overcome my sin. My sin is too great. My sin is too deep. It's been going on too long. God can't overcome my sin. If that's the backing track for your life. Or if the backing track for your life is not doubt but grumble, it's just too hard as a Christian. I can't keep going. It's just too hard as a Christian. I can't keep going. I just... God doesn't give me what I need. God doesn't give me what I need. God doesn't give me what I need. If those are the playlists in your mind, you're heading towards giving up. And we need to play a better playlist if we're going to keep going as Christians. There's a reason why Christians often say, you know, the best thing to do is to start the day by reading the Bible. It's basically saying, plug in a decent playlist into your brain for that day. Put truths into your head, not that you tick it off, you've done your quiet time, but put truths into your head that you keep circling around your mind for the day. It'd be wonderful tomorrow to take Psalm 114, it's nice and short, and to read that first thing in the morning. To make the playlist for your day tomorrow, God is mighty to save, and God has promised to provide. God is mighty to save, and God has promised to provide. God is mighty to save, and God has promised to provide. Of course, we remember songs much better than just statements. And so in a moment, we're going to sing. Uh, We're going to sing the truths that we have been studying from this psalm. And my prayer is the Holy Spirit will drive them into our hearts and into our memory. And that these will be the things that circle around your head. Why not take your service sheet home? Don't leave it tonight. Take it with you. Keep it in your pocket through the week. Keep looking at those songs. Keep looking at the psalm. Keep remembering the goodness of God. Keep the right playlist so that you'll keep going. I'm going to pray now as the band come up.
Our Father God, we thank you that you are mighty to save. We thank you that there is nothing in all the world that can stop you saving your people. You will tear up creation if that is what is necessary to save those whom you love. And our Father, thank you too that you are mighty to provide. That even in the wilderness you can bring streams of living water. Father, forgive us for where we've lost sight of these glorious truths. Help us not to feed the doubt. Help us instead to to look to the Lord Jesus and help us to fill our minds and our hearts with truths that will sustain us. We pray by your spirit that this week we would know and remember and keep remembering that you are a God who is mighty to save and a God who has promised to provide. Amen.